This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Donald Gaffney. He's the author of Common Grounds, Talking About Gun Violence in America. He also serves as a Disciples of Christ minister in Pennsylvania. Don, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. Now, for those that aren't familiar with your story, uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Uh, well, I'm actually a bivocational pastor. I've um, always been involved in the church, but after about seven years in my professional career, I uh, decided to go to seminary and um, just get more information. Um, because I was so active, and God in his providence uh, um, laid me off from my secular job so that I could um, pursue a a master of uh, divinity and uh, get ordained. Um, And then I got called back to my secular job and uh, have since then done uh, multiple uh, interim ministries, and also, a lot of my work has been, I like to say, incognito, uh, where I'm not necessarily known as a minister, but I have done a lot of small group uh, f- uh, facilitations uh, around uh, various mental health issues as well. So um, it was in that within all of that general background, um, I've I've lived uh, out here in western Pennsylvania for the last 45 years. Um, I've just recently retired from my secular job. I have not retired from ministry, although I don't currently pastor a congregation. I uh, serve as mentor to a commissioned minister who is leading the congregation where I'm an elder right now. Now, how that's, did you, that's uh, my general. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how how did you end up in the disciples of Christ tradition? Um, you know, it's often said of CBF that disciples of Christ are are pretty closely uh, theologically to to a lot of our CBF churches, which tend to be uh, you know more moderate to progressive Baptist expression. 
Yes, yes. Um, well, <laughs> um, when I was in college, uh, going from uh, Connecticut, I went to college in upstate New York at a school called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Um, I was dating a girl who was a Christian, and uh, we, um, for her to come up and visit me at school, um, her, her a friend of a friend knew the minister of a disciples congregation in upstate New York, and uh, um, so we made connections there, and then we got married married before I went back to a fifth year of college up there where I got my master's degree in geology. And that fifth year, um, we were late putting in for student housing. Uh, we approached the, the disciples minister there and said, hey, do you have a, uh, know anybody who has uh, an apartment for rent or anything? And uh, he was a young minister also. He was a bachelor, and he said, yes, you can live with uh, me in the parsonage. So the two of us ended up living in the parsonage with him. Uh, I did grounds work and uh, maintenance around the place, and my wife cooked, and uh, the three of us had a good time, and I got to see um, both disciples and uh, ministry pretty up close and personal that school year. So that then uh, led when we moved out to Western Pennsylvania, I got involved in the disciples. And uh, like I said, uh, God keeps opening doors and providing opportunities. And I try to listen as best I can and walk through. So are you blaming being a disciples of Christ on a girl? Are you trying to say that? I just, I just want to clarify. Not at all. It's, no, it's just, it's just the way um, providence works. <laughs> now, are, are you still, uh, are you still married to this girl? Yes, I am. Uh, in about, well, um, the middle of August, uh, we will celebrate um, our 47th wedding anniversary. Well, congratulations, so, yes. and I and I'll also say that if you can survive living in a parsonage, uh, I think marriage can pretty much survive anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My so, wife and I have an yeah. agreement that we will not live, you know, uh, within about four or five miles of the congregation that I'm serving at a time, just to have that space. So, nothing uh, like, yeah, uh, yeah. living in a fishbowl like a like a parsonage. Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I will say I will say that I really like the disciples for for the the fact that they are a, a very American amalgamation of Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists. You know, I you know that uh, uh, we are that that provides us with plenty of room for diversity within our denomination. So, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Now, you have a, another interesting part of your story, which will eventually get us to your book, um, that you attended Sandy Hook Elementary School as a child and, um, of course, are therefore profoundly connected um, by what happened in December of 2012 there. Uh, take us a little bit deeper there. Yes. Um, when I was, uh, I'm a boomer, part of the post-World War II baby boom, and uh, uh, 
Sandy Hook was the, the new uh, elementary school in town. And when I started first grade, I was there for the first year in the school. Um, my first grade room was way down the end of the hall. And I remember that they um, they didn't even have all of the alphabet tiles in yet for the first grader floor uh, when they first opened it. But uh, I, I was there for first grade, the, the inaugural year of the school, and then second, third, and fourth grade. So I spent four years walking the halls uh, of that school, um, moving around in the, throughout the corridor, getting familiar you know, with the nurse's office and the, and the office office and the cafeteria. And so I, I have a very, very vivid mental picture of how the school is laid out. And um, when that massacre occurred uh, in December of 2012, uh, I just had a very vivid, very visceral response to that. Uh, I could picture it so vividly. And, um, you know, I, I, and I, you know, I lived in Newtown all of my life uh, until I did go away to college and get married and landed a job out here in Western Pennsylvania. But uh, uh, I, I uh, have fond memories of the town. And as I, as I mentioned in the book, it was kind of uh, uh, very, very typical, stereotypical New England. Uh, the church that I was um, Baptized, confirmed, and married in a typical white clabbered uh, New England congregational church uh, with a flagpole up front in, on Main Street, and uh, uh, just a very, uh, very nice town. And once it ha once that shooting occurred in Newtown, um, in addition to really grieving, part of my response was. If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. It just, you know, it's just, uh, just so, so strong for me that way. And my grief was very intense. And, and as a part of that, I, uh, I realized that if, if I did nothing, then I was being silent in the face of the status quo. And my silence in, in the face of status quo uh, makes me complicit with what's going on and so I had to do something and that something with me always starts with doing my homework <clears throat> finding out what I can about a topic in this case gun violence now you have a, a new book out uh, common grounds talking about gun violence in America and this book is a personal and theological narrative of your experience with gun violence uh, what it's done to your hometown of Newtown, Connecticut, and how Christians should act in the face of such atrocities. Um, so walk us through what was going on in your journey that, that now was the time to, to write this book. Uh, <laughs> again, it's been a, a case of uh, um, God continuing to open doors um, as a result of my study um, in addition to tracking uh, online gun control groups and gun uh, rights groups and uh, doing uh, uh, 
studies in history, doing studies in theology, doing studies uh, in uh, all of the various facets. I also naturally, as a part of that, turned to the church, turned to my denomination, and um, looked to see what they had uh, to to speak on the subject. And to my dismay, uh, they had not spoken on the subject in 25 years. And uh, it, it so happened that I was approached by an acquisitions editor from Westminster, John Knox Press, uh, about this topic. And uh, she, she very cleverly asked me, uh, she saw my name tag, recognized that I had facilitated that workshop and said, oh, you're the one that did the, uh, did the gun violence workshop. I wanted to attend that. Say, could you recommend a book that I could read? And my response was, well, yes, but of course, you know that 10 seconds after I hand you the book, you're going to know where the author stands on the issue. They're either going to be a, a gun control advocate or they're going to be a gun rights advocate. And so whatever I give you, you're going to have to, to take that into consideration, read it with a grain of salt. And... Um, she got called away, and then a, another cashier there said she wasn't asking for for uh, her own edification. She was testing to see how much you really knew about the subject and, and whether you might be uh, someone who could write a book. So um, I said, oh, really? <laughs> called her. Uh, I said, well, let's continue that conversation. So... Uh, so we continued the conversation, swapped information. Uh, I still had to do a formal, uh, full author proposal for the book. Uh, they had to do. They did uh, their due diligence in terms of doing a uh, full uh, review of the proposal, including a market survey to determine whether uh, a book like this would really be viable. And um, so. Ultimately, they, they offered me a, a contract to, to produce the manuscript, and I did that. Uh, three, three versions later, uh, it was accepted. And um, I will say that in addition, it is laid out in six chapters, and it's set up um, for individual or group study. and. I really encourage people to take their time going through the book, maybe read a chapter a week and take a week to just let it ruminate and then come back and and read the next chapter and think about the questions and, again, let it work and take your time reading the book. And uh, as a part of that, I really hope that people can get to the point where they can tell their own story so that whenever they uh, are either faced with entering into a conversation or initiate a conversation about uh, gun violence, that they can speak, first of all, knowledgeably, and second of all, from the uniqueness of their own perspective. Mm. Because you know, we are all unique, and it's the unique perspective that can make all the difference in the world. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. 
At the center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Story is um, core to this book. Um, You not only share your story of your community, of Sandy Hook Elementary School, but also the story of those who've been victims of gun violence in America. Uh, why did you take that approach to it instead of just specifically talking into the the one incident that happened in your town? Um, because I wanted to provide other examples, as I said in the, in the forward of the preface, that you know, my my example, my story is there for illustration purposes. They're, it's, it, I'm not exemplary. I'm not perfect. Um, you know, use uh, rec- use my uh, my story as an example of how somebody me how I tell my story. Um, other people have told their stories, and so I, in the first chapter, in terms of developing. Uh, each person's own story. I present the two other uh, individuals and their stories, so that uh, you know it's it's a it's a summary of their stories. They're the, they each put out a, a book entirely related to their stories. So you know, if you want to explore those deeper or get additional insight on that, you can. But also the, the bottom line is, you know, I want to hear your story. I want to hear. When I when I'm talking with anyone about this, I want to hear their story. I, I want to listen first and see where they are. In August, um, you know, as we're recording this podcast, um, you know, it's uh, an unfortunate coincidence that there's been two massacres uh, this last weekend. Some politicians uh, came out to say that these atrocities were the result of. America's oversaturation with violence and consumer entertainment. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes people try to grab at straws to, to blame, you know, or to find something at fault. And you wrote in the book, a, a deeper question here is whether or not something intrinsically evil is fueling our violence and gun uh, control. Um, if so, what, what that might be. Um, so what do you think is at the core of gun violence in America? Oh, I guess I would have to say what is at core is, I I guess I want to, I want to, to fall back on Walter Wink and, and his, his uh, theology of the powers that be. And, and the domination system that is our government and not just the current government not just this president but 
throughout our history, the the way that uh, our history has been defined by um, dominating over others, uh, and uh, and so in 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 that sense, the uh, the real evil is is our our push to dominate and control. Uh, that is taking violence to the to the abstract. It works out in a very real way. Um, in that, uh, first of all, guns exacerbate violence, and number two, our system, our our domination system, our our government, our American way, our American culture uh, has this myth that goes with our history that's called uh, redemptive violence. And uh, we are continually redeemed and regenerated and reborn by success, being successful at violence. And, and that, that myth fuels us as an American people. Um, you know, and and I and I mapped that out some in the book in terms of looking at our history and how uh, you know we've 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 always had a frontier uh, that we could go and and conquer, and uh, you know we we followed the frontier, we we conquered the the savage, if you will, the the indigenous people, and and. When we got to the end of the frontier, we turned around and the, the the frontier became the inner city and the ghettos and the minorities living in those. And how did we try to conquer or re-dominate those? And you know, and and it continues, and it we we see it in our I want to say in all aspects of our American culture. Now that's that's kind of theoretical, kind of deep, but you ask for the core, and I guess that's where I would place it. It's it's it is, and and I guess I would even take it. It is who we are as a people, and and yeah, if you want to expand it to our human sinful nature, um, you know, are we are we basically good but fallen? Are we Evil but forgiven. You know, that's that's something that I continue to wrestle with. Mm. Uh, well, the, I mean, yeah. even theologically speaking, it's easy to see why some have justified a violent image of God and an even greater justification of God's people being violent. I mean, dear Lord, just <laughs> read stories <Yeah>. like <laughs> Numbers chapter twenty-five, where. Aaron's son lunges a spear through an Israelite and his pagan lover as a way of appeasing God's mm-hmm. wrath from this plague. And, and at the same time, we see God and God's people overcoming oppression and injustice and ending violent reigns of sociopaths. Um, you wrote in the book, uh, clearly the weapons used in the Bible are not the firearms, guns, rifles, and explosives we have today. But as in all eras of world history, there are plenty of weapons with which to injure and kill. The Bible, we find armies with 
uh, archers and spearmen and swordsmen. So theologically, how do, how do we grapple with the violence and weapons of the Bible? Well, we, we can't deny them. We can't skirt around them. I think we have to face them and wrestle with them. Uh, and, and there is no easy answer. You know, if you, <laughs> I, I wish... I wish I had an easy answer for what do we do with the violence in the Bible? I, I think that what, what astounds me about God is that God gets angry like we do, but he has a different anger management than we do. And I only wish I knew what that was. I mean, he, you know, he continually, he, he threatens to rain down punishment, but he relents. He threatens and he relents. He threatens and he relents. And, you know, it's, it's, it is a very open-ended question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's as broad as, heaven and hell are it are heaven and hell external realities where people are especially hell is where where people are going to be burning forever or frozen forever and and that's something that we've wrestled with for millennia and none of us no, until we cross the veil, um, for sure. At the same time, I think we have the responsibility as uh, as people of faith, but also people who were equipped to think critically, to understand that in many regards, the violence, uh, you know, the New Testament isn't void of it. Uh, the further and further you get away from uh, the time of Christ on earth, the more violent images yes. you have within New Testament letters. Yes, yes but, certainly, um, yes. You know, but within the Old Testament, you know, we have this responsibility to contemplate, to dialogue, and this is where often people yes. um, aren't willing to go when it comes to biblical criticism, is to contemplate that um, this is where we start to see the humanity in Scripture, that here is a group of people who... Um, are born into a violent world and maybe, maybe use violence to um, a religion to justify their acts of violence and their acts of genocide, their acts of, of murder. And um, you know, what does that mean for us as people of faith? What does that mean in how we read and interpret scripture? And for many people, because they don't want to enter into that dialogue, they don't, they're afraid of the conclusions you might draw. And so they won't enter into that space uh, to think critically about such things. Um, but as we start to see it more and more, uh, especially within the American church, we have the responsibility to contemplate such things. In fact, you know, the problem with this conversation around American Christians is that it is a theological issue, which is a, yes. a very theological divided issue among political allegiance. Um, you wrote in the book as Christian Americans, uh, we each have a civic responsibility, including voting to elect government officials to represent us. I know where my election representatives stand on gun, guns, gun violence, and prevention of gun control. 
Um, so where else do you see, um, you know, Americans, American Christians taking this on a civil and social level when it comes to this theological conversation? Uh, one of the areas, um, you know, that I have recently discovered and waded into is, is, uh, Rene Girard, and I mentioned him in the in the in the Bible and or in, in the book about uh, violence and the place of violence and sacrifice. And uh, I think that um, a part of that has to do. I'm even I'm I'm wrestle with even uh, going back to consideration of different types of, uh, of atonement. What does atonement mean? Does, does our violent God really require a blood sacrifice of an innocent? Or was that, uh, that sacrifice, that, that death, just simply, again, like you said, the actions of our very fallen humanity um, not knowing how to deal with somebody so innocent, pure, and uh, and different, and and so I I I wrestle with um, atonement. I also wrestle with the concept of scapegoating. Sca- scapegoating is very. I mean, it's a biblical concept, but in today's society, we've seen how how wrong that is, you know, and 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 you know. So, a part, you know, I guess where I'm headed with some of this is where I'm headed, but I don't want to necessarily go is saying we have evolved in our understanding of scripture. I think that some of that is true. But I also think that we need to respect Scripture as Scripture, and and so that this type of uh, conversation I welcome <laughs> because uh, it's it's something that we need to be honest about. Instead of, I think we need to be as honest about that or the, these topics as we are about the social topics of gun violence or violence. That, that the theological topics recognize that there have been different answers in different times and in different circumstances. And I think it's time for us to revisit our understandings, our common understandings. Well, I think, you know, for me, I think where this conversation at least begins uh, for American Christians um, is in the church. And we don't want to talk about these things because they are divisive issues. Um, and in fact, you, you give readers a warning. <laughs> you say talking about guns and violence in the church can essentially be dangerous if you expect more than thoughts and prayers. When I first brought up the possibility of addressing gun violence in my home church, I quickly found out where people stood. So uh, what are some best practices for navigating this conversation within a local church? 
Um, I would suggest, I guess, two two avenues: um, education. Um, education about uh, guns and gun violence, and it can start with the the, uh, the minister, the elders, the deacons, um, the, the the governing body. Uh, you can start at, at that level, having some conversations, and it and it should start by being. You know, being honest about why you want to have a conversation. If if someone in a leadership role is deeply troubled, face that and own that. Own those feelings and share those feelings. And start with the commonality of our feelings, uh, hopelessness, frustration, um, and and recognize that as long as we're just quoting statistics or uh, repeating memes, we're not advancing anything. We're just we're just reiterating what's already out there. But it starts with it starts first of all with education, and then it also starts, I think, in prayerful wor- worship. Uh, on the political side, we're we're tired of hearing politicians say. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people. But within Sunday morning worship, pastoral prayer, it is entirely appropriate to name the victims and the situation and offer that prayer up. That is that is a, a great first practice. Um, we have done that in our church. The, the commission minister who is pastoring our our home church now um, he he has i want to say he's gotten it he understands he is grieved by it and it 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 took the tree of life synagogue in pittsburgh uh, that massacre last november to to uh, hit him and as a part of what he did in worship on his own, no prompting from me, uh, he put out votive candles for each of the victims uh, along the, the front of, of the sanctuary and um, and lit them as as a part as he went into the pastoral prayer and the symbology and the the naming and the specifics I think those are all great ways to uh, to start conversations and then once once the conversations are started leaders who are known to have this concern will have opportunities to engage people one on one if nothing else um, this past sunday i had uh, Two, at least two members of the congregation come up uh, to me and uh, commiserated with me and grieved with me over what had happened at, at, in El Paso and in Dayton. And um, hearing that and 
Um, that's that is a a really that that's where I would start education and worship. Draw it up there. Well, as you've as you've written this book um, in such a practical um, and deeply theological way, um, how do you see local churches using this book as a resource? I think it would be useful as a uh, small group study within the within the church. Um, I think either. Uh, there's, you could use it in a, it's a six-week study. You could use it over Lent. I think that would be an appropriate time, you know, between Ash Wednesday and Easter, um, when we're called to reflect uh, on our violence and our walks. Uh, I think that uh, it could be used as part of a home study. Um, if if uh, your congregation has groups of people meeting uh Meeting in individual homes, uh, families get together. Uh, it can be um, the start of uh, for conversations um, and provide some very deep, uh, thoughtful discussion. Uh, I I will. Um, one thing that has been brought to my attention is the leadership of a small group. Do not feel that. Uh, uh, one person needs to carry the load. Uh, I, I have uh, been rethinking that, and I would recommend team teaching. Uh, you know, two people uh, leading the small group uh, and and holding each other accountable to to stay on task and to uh, to relax and re- and rest in the flow of the conversation instead of trying to steer the conversation. So you've written this book and these incidents continue to happen. What do you see next in your ministry of creating dialogue around gun violence in America? Oh, my, um, the, in July, I, I led another workshop on, on gun violence in, uh, at, at our General Assembly again. We have biennial General Assembly, so we just wrapped one up. Um, and I will say what a difference two years makes. When I did a gun violence prevention workshop in 2017, I had 33 people attend. When I did the one a month ago, I had 165 people attend. Um, it is it is shooting up on everyone's radar, and um, so where I particularly am going, I would expect probably I left I left the General Assembly sensing that my next or my next variation, if you will. Um, I saw a lot of intersections uh, at at the uh, General Assembly, uh, and by that I mean uh, cross-discipline, if you will, perhaps. And so I am preparing to embark on looking deeply into 
the intersection of gun violence and mental health. Um, we know that uh, two-thirds of the gun deaths in America are suicides. Um, depression uh, and PTSD uh, drive a lot of those. Uh, in addition, however, there are other mental illnesses that have violent sides to them, uh, including some PTSD, um, but uh, also uh, other others. And so I want to try to do a, a balanced, a detailed study of um, that, that intersection between mental health and gun violence. Uh, so it's not just thrown out as an excuse, or and it's not uh, it's not used uh, to the harm of mental illness or mental health issues. So, so that's that's where I see that I'm headed with respect to gun violence. What's the best way for people to stay connected with you? Ah. Uh, <laughs> if if they want to get in touch with me, uh, I have been sharing my uh, email address. Uh, the only thing I ask is that in the subject heading that they put uh, GVP, that's gun violence prevention, GVP in the, in the subject line. Uh, and I have a very simple email address that is just... Uh, D. Gaffney, first initial, last name, uh, at mac.com. It's M-A-C dot C-O-M. Very simple. Um, part, of, part of what I try to model and I think is appropriate um, is vulnerability. And uh, um, making myself available, putting myself out there, that is that's a part of it. It's a, um, if, if we are to be true to our Christ and our call, um, I really believe that we should um, move forward out of our, out of our weakness and also um, keep ourselves vulnerable and open, arms outspread. We hope you'll go out and purchase Common Grounds wherever books are sold. Uh, Don, thank you for inviting us into a difficult dialogue for the transformation of the world. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsor's website, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.